You are listening to the Wickenburg Pulpit, the preaching ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg, Arizona, where we seek to be faithful to Scripture and relevant to life. Again, if you will, turn in your Bibles to First Peter. we look in this text, we're going to look in just a moment that we're looking at verse 13 through 25. There's an imperative here to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we're going to get in that here in just a moment. I'll read the text in just a moment. But Really, over the last several years, as my wife and I have done foster care for 10 years in Kentucky, and uh, even over the last several months, that stories of just brokenness and sin have been, been in front of me, it's, it's clear that there is no hope apart from Christ. There is no hope in the things of this world I think a lot of people make New Year's resolutions about their health, and that's great. I want to get healthier too, just like the rest of you. And, you know, we, we diet, we exercise, but our hope cannot be in having good health. I remember my own grandfather years ago who one week he was out cutting his grass just like he did, healthy man, and three weeks later we were at his funeral because cancer killed him in a matter of weeks. We can't put our hope in health. We can't put our hope in, in, our, in our careers because we can lose that job and, and, and be left unemployed. We, we, we can't put our hope in relationships with people because they will fail us at times. There is no hope apart from Christ. And I've seen many hopeless, seemingly hopeless situations, and as a foster parent, as a pastor, knowing many things that could lead someone to despair. Where is our hope? And as we looked at last week, we've been born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Christ to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. Man, I when, when I see the brokenness in our world, when I see the sin that's manifested in our world, I, I'm, I'm ready for that. I'm ready for that day when I can receive that inheritance and this sinful world is made new. We come to our text today. What do we do as we wait for that hope, as that which we hope in, this grace to be revealed to us, what do we do while we wait? Let's read the text together as we begin, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. What do we do while we wait for this blessed hope? We see here that we have this first imperative in verse 13, that, that, that this, this fixing your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is talking about when Christ returns, when he is finally revealed to us in his second coming. And this grace that we have had our faith in will be finally given to us. We will finally lay hold of that which is ours by faith now. But what do we do while we wait for this hope, while our, while our hope is set here? What, what do we do? And I want us to see that as we set our hope on the grace and salvation we will receive when Christ comes, we must not wait idly but live a life of holiness, fear, and love. We just sang a song that my hope is only in Jesus. My hope is only in Christ. And this this idea of fixing your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ, this this connects us back to verse 3, that we were born again to this living hope, this inheritance that, that awaits us, that is reserved for us, that we are being protected for, that we talked about last week. This is our hope. Our hope is not in the things of this world. Our hope is not in the things that could lead us to despair. Our hope is only in and through Jesus Christ. And we are told, set your hope fully in that. And I'm sure you've probably heard the phrase, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You ever heard that before? That comes from a a quote from Don Quixote in 1605 where he says, It is the part of a wise man to keep himself today for tomorrow and not venture all his eggs in one basket. Now, what he's doing there is giving investment advice. That's great investment advice. I've I've got a retirement plan and I've got got money in, in various stocks so that if one stock crashes, which is very possible in our economy today, the hope is that The rest of them aren't doing so bad, and I'm still making money that way for my future. That's great investment advice, but it's terrible religious advice. Scripture says here to set your hope fully on this. 
that our trust and our hope is fully on Christ and in this hope that we have in this imperishable inheritance that we will receive one day. That our hope must be fully in Christ. And exactly how do we set our hope in Christ fully? How do we set our hope here? Well, it tells us in verse 13, we have these two other verbs that the ESV captures this better by saying, preparing your minds for action and and keeping sober in the spirit. This word, to prepare your minds for action in the original Greek, uh, is a phrase that says to gird up your loins. Now, we don't talk like that. But essentially, in that day, everybody, men and women, would both be wearing this long, flowing robe. And even the ones in the military would be wearing this long, flowing robe. And if they had to go to battle, they would have to pull up their long, flowing robe above their knees and and, and gird it up, essentially tie essentially a belt-like thing around their waist so that they could run in battle and be ready for whatever they had to do. A modern phrase for us today would be to roll up your sleeves, get ready to work, get ready to put in some effort. Our our hope is not an idle hope. It, It is a call to action. While we wait, we are called to do something. And it says that we are to be sober-minded. We, we are to think rightly about ourselves and about who God is. There's a call to action. We have in this text three different imperatives that tell us what we are to do while we wait. James 2.17 says, Even so faith, if it has not works, is dead, being by Ourself. I want to be clear that when we talk about works, we talk about this effort. We're not talking about a works-based salvation, that, that your works and your effort at these things that we're going to talk about today somehow merits your salvation. It is faith alone that saves, but our faith, as James says, produces action. Our faith produces something in us to where we live and walk in obedience to the Lord. And so as we walk through this text... The first thing I want us to see, that as we set our hope fully in the gospel, we must live a life of holiness. As we set our hope fully in the gospel, we must live a life of holiness. And as we walk through these three things, what we're going to see is that what we are called to do is rooted in, first and foremost, what God has already done. And we're going to see that throughout all of these things. What we are called to do is rooted in what God has already done. We see here this this verb to be holy, but let's walk through this here in verse 14. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, see, there's what God has done, he has called us this internal call. We, we, we have an external call of the gospel that, that where preachers and teachers and evangelists alike will, will call you to repent and believe the gospel. But there is this work of God that happens inside of us where God is, is divinely calling us, divinely drawing us to himself. But like the Holy One who called you, what God did, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. 
It's this call to holiness. Kevin DeYoung says that this is a spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. We're called to do something. But what does it mean to be holy? Well, first it means that we are not conformed to our former manner of life. That's what the text says. Let's break this down here in verse 14. As obedient children. As obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance. This is another evidence that these were Gentiles. They were ignorant of God's law, so they lived opposed to God's law. They, they didn't know any better. They were Gentiles. They're saying, look, now you know the gospel. You know, you know what God's word requires. Now don't be conformed to the way you used to live, but now live this way. You've been redeemed. Now live holy. Pursue holiness. This shows that we are to repent, and repentance is not just being sorry for our sin. Repentance is a change of life. Don't live this way anymore. It's interesting, as it says, as obedient children. And sometimes children are not quite obedient, but I think about our time in foster care. We did, we've, we did foster care for 10 years, and... We would have kids come from a load of backgrounds and likely not very many rules um, and, and came into our house. And our house was very different from what they grew up in. And we had to work with them. Hey, that might be how your mom and dad did it at their house. But look, you're going to be with us for a while. And sometimes that was a month. Sometimes that was years. But you've got to conform the way we do things, you're, 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 we're going to take care of you, we're going to love you, we're going to care for you, but this is how we do things here. It's different. They're now in a new home, they have a, temporarily have a new identity, and now they are having to conform to a new way of life. Romans 12, 1 and 2 speaks on this as well. Let me turn there really quick, I did not mark it, but I am almost there. Romans 12, 1 says this. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but, by, but, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to this manner of life that you once lived in. So being holy means we repent and we turn from that former way of life. But another thing about holiness is we have to model our holiness after God's holiness. It says here in verse 15, but like the holy one who called you, like, like that one, like the holy one, be holy yourselves. Also, in all your behavior, because, as 16, as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, in your Bible versions, it, it may have that, that, that phrase, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It may have a, a reference to a passage in Leviticus. And, and depending on your version, it may have a different reference. Because this, this phrase, be holy as God is holy, is found 
In Leviticus 11, 44 through 45, it's found in 19 verse 1, and 20 verse 7, and 20 verse 26. You know, a lot of times when we do our annual Bible readings, anybody tried to read the Bible through a year? Anybody tried that? Okay, I've got a few in here. I'm just going to poll the audience here. When you read through the Bible, how many of you get hung up in Leviticus? Okay, everybody's like, oh yeah. So there's a lot of people who's like, I haven't read the Bible in a year because I got hung up in Leviticus. It's like, man, we get like to the third book of the Bible and we're done. Yikes. Well, it's true. It's a hard book. We, 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 we're like, man, what's this? there's so many laws, so many weird laws, so many strange laws, right? But ultimately, it's rooted in that these are the people of God, and they are called to live a certain way. God is holy. They say, this is how you live a holy life. This is my law. Now, obviously, there's some things that are, when we sift through Leviticus, there's some things that are concrete and true for all generations. There's some things there that are more culturally applied we had to sift through some of that this was a book that was about the holiness of God and the holiness of God's people be holy for I am holy so if we're going to pursue holiness if we're going to live a holy life if we're going to be holy we first have to understand what it means for God to be holy what does that mean I believe this is captured best in 1 John 1, 5, where it says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. As a result, the text says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. God's holiness means that there is not one ounce of sin in God. He is, he is completely and perfectly and infinitely holy, and that's hard for us to comprehend sometimes because, man, we are we're pretty messed up people. We sin, and, 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 and even if you could find, if we could sift through this room and find the most holy person in this room, they would still be tainted with sin. But God is perfectly and infinitely holy. So for us to be holy as God is holy, that, that we ought to strive for this. To, to be holy as he is, to, 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 to flee from sin when we see it, to, to run away from sin. But so many times we try to kind of say that this particular sin might be okay. All right, you know, come on, this isn't really a big sin. This is just a small indiscretion. This is just a, a white lie. This is really not a big deal, is it? Come on, well. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, and we are to be holy as God is holy, then we are to strive to live this life where we don't rationalize our sin away. We repent of sin. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Allow me to share a, a quote this is from jerry bridges in his book the pursuit of holiness and he says many christians have what we might call a cultural holiness they adapt to the character and behavior patterns of christians around them as the christian culture around them is more or less holy so these christians are more or less holy 
But God has not called us to be like those around us. He has called us to be like himself. Holiness is nothing less than conformity to the character of God. Now hear these words from Stephen Charnock who wrote in the 17th century. He's a Puritan. And he says this, speaking of God's holiness. Though we conceive him, God, infinite in majesty, infinite in essence, eternal in duration, wise and immutable in all his counsels, mighty in power, merciful in his proceedings with men, and whatsoever other perfections may dignify so sovereign a being, yet if we conceive him destitute of this excellent perfection and imagine him possessed with the least contagion of evil, we make him but an infinite monster." and sully all those perfections we ascribed him before. It is a contradiction to be God and to be darkness, or to have one mote of darkness mixed with his light. When we think of God's holiness, we think about absolute moral perfection. We think of God's hatred against sin. We think of his, his love for righteousness. We think about being holy. We, we love what God loves. We love to pursue righteousness. We, when, we, when we think about being holy, we, we hate sin where we see it. First, we hate it in our own lives and in our own hearts. And daily, we're confessing. And daily, we're repenting of sin. And daily, we say, man, I blew it again. God, help me to be holy as you are holy. But also, we have to hate sin in one another. We have to hate sin in one another because we're called to be the holy people of God. We're called to be a holy church. And so many scriptures say that if if you see your brother sinning, you go to him and you restore him and you seek his restoration. Why? Because we care about holiness. We're to be people who are holy. And the text also says here, if we look, to be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Maybe some of your versions say in all of your conduct. There is not one area of your life that gets a pass on holiness. Right? We, we think about like we put on our church face, right? I'm gonna be holy at church. I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go to church, I'm not gonna cuss, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna put on my church face, I'm gonna be holy when I'm with other Christians, but It says to be holy in all of your conduct. We're to pursue holiness, not just at church, but we're to pursue holiness at home, in our marriages, and in our parenting. We're to pursue holiness when we're at the grocery store. We're to pursue holiness when we're stuck in traffic. Yikes. We're to pursue holiness when we're watching our team lose on the the TV. Holiness is everywhere in everything. And we have to learn that now because when we're in those moments, as as we're looking in 1 Peter, these moments of suffering, there are going to be times in our lives where we want to put holiness on the counter. We want to say, you know what, I'm not feeling very holy today. I got to respond to this. I got to deal with this and, and, uh, you know. Probably not going to be very holy. No, we, we can't do that. We've got we've to learn this now and develop this pursuit of holiness now so that when we're in those moments that test us, 
it's already ingrained in our mind, like, you know what, I need to be holy. I need, what would God want for me in this situation? How can I respond in holiness in this moment? Maybe I should wave with five fingers instead of one while I'm in traffic. What does it mean to be holy? And let me ask you this. If holiness is an area, area of our life, what, what, is our, what does our bank statements and checkbook say about our holiness? What does our calendar say about our holiness and our commitment to holiness? What is our, what is our life saying to about our commitment to holiness? Be holy in all your conduct. So be holy as God is holy and be holy in all of your conduct. The people of God, as we, as we set our hope fully on this grace and as we wait for this blessed hope that we have, we live and pursue holiness. But number two, as we set our hope fully in the gospel, we must conduct ourselves with fear. As we look in this text, as we continue on, verse 17, it says... If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your stay on earth. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited by your forefathers, but with precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Again, I want us to see here that what we are called to do in this, these verses, to conduct ourselves with fear, is rooted in what God has already done. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Essentially what this text is telling us, because you have been redeemed by Christ's blood, now therefore go and live this way. Conduct yourselves in fear. What do we mean by that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. We have a lot of these uh, sayings of faith over fear, and, 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 and well, now I'm telling you to conduct yourself in fear, so what, what, what do I mean? Well, let's dig into the text. It says here that if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself with fear. We see two things here about God. He is our Father, and He is our Judge. We see that He is a a Father who loves us. He cares for us. It's compassion for us. We have a relationship with Him. But He's also an impartial Judge who judges according to each one's work. Now, Edmund Clowney writes this, He will pronounce for all of the redeemed the satisfaction of Christ's atoning death and the merit of his perfect obedience. Yet the faithfulness of the Lord's people will also be displayed, not as the basis of our acceptance, but to show the reality of their faith in the Savior. I want to talk about this concept of being judged according to each one's work because, well, Pastor, you preached through Galatians, and you've talked about being saved by faith, right? Yes, we are saved by faith, and faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone. It is, as James says, our faith produces works, and so as it says that he is an impartial judge who judges us by our works, 
It is our works that give evidence to what we have, our faith. Our works give evidence and testimony that our faith is real and genuine. If we say that we have faith in Christ and we don't live our lives for him, then that faith is a hoax. Right? So these works, he's an impartial judge. Now, what does it mean to conduct ourselves with fear? Now, a lot of people want to say that fear is just reverence for God, and, and, and it's certainly a part of that, that we respect and have a reverence for God, but that is not entirely what it means to fear God. It literally means to fear Him. Not in a paralyzing way by we're afraid that God's going to just strike us down the moment we commit a small indiscretion. We're saved in Christ and we've been clothed with Christ's righteousness. That's not going to happen if we're clinging to Christ by faith. But listen to what this says in Matthew 10, 28. It says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body, both soul and body in hell. Now those are some weighty words. And this is more than just mere reverence, but, but as we think about fearing the one who can get, kill both soul and body in hell, when we think of this impartial judge who will judge us by our works, church, there is, there is no place in our Christian life for, for us to say, you know what, hey, God's my father. He loves me. He's going to let this sin slide today. No, he's not. He's an impartial judge who is infinitely and perfectly holy. There's no place for us thinking that because we have a relationship with God as father that, that sin somehow gets a pass. No, he's also this judge. And because of that, we're called to live in a real fear of who he is. Conduct yourselves in fear. Again, why? Hold on, let me back up. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Again, think about these, these men and women that he's writing to as they're suffering exile for their faith. They're, they've been exiled out of their home. They're suffering persecution. And again, he's reminding them, listen, this isn't your home. This isn't your home. There's an inheritance waiting for you. You have an imperishable inheritance that you are to set your hope on fully. But as you are here on earth during your stay, live this way. Conduct yourself in fear of God. Because, verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed by perishable things, but you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. You, you, you've been redeemed by his blood. Now, now fear God in a certain way that that leads you to obedience. In verse 20, it says, for, for he, talking about Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, we've already talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that this means a lot more than to know beforehand. This means that the, the, the word know in, in Greek is, is a word that has intimacy and love behind that. It would seem very odd to say that God knew Jesus before the foundation of the world. Well, of course he did. Of course he did. That's, that's not what the text is telling us. Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit, the, the Trinity, enjoyed this sweet fellowship and relationship with one another. They loved one another for eternity. And you know what? Because of that loving fellowship that they have, they did not need any one of us. 
They, they don't need you and me to complete them. They are complete in, God is complete in himself. He has been loved by the Father from the foundation of the world, but it says here, but he has appeared in these last times for whose sake? For yours. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, now live in a such a way that you fear him. I think many times we fear other things instead of God. Now, last night as I was kind of just thinking about the sermon, I, I decided to go to one of the most uh, best sources on anything, which is the internet. And um, I want to look up some kind of weird, I, I like to, I'd like to look up weird phobias. What are, what are people afraid of? Well, here's some of them. And, and I want to say that, that, that our fear, our fear, whatever we fear, it, it, it leads us to live in light of that fear, okay? Whatever it is that we fear, we, we, we make decisions and, and live a certain way based on that fear. I, I make no qualms about this. I'm, I'm absolutely terrified of heights. Now, I've learned to write, get on a plane. Planes don't bother me anymore. But man, when I went to the Grand Canyon for the first time, it's so beautiful, but I'm like, yeah, that's, that's nice. I'm going to stand back here. Well, I see these other fools standing on like a ledge where they're like moments away from their impending death. Like, what's wrong with you people? Like, that's a big fall, and uh, I'm going to enjoy the scenery from a few steps back, right? It changes the way I live my life. I'm not going to go skydiving, all right? So... Here's a few for you, and I'm probably going to botch these names, but Iraq, Iraq, butterophobia is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Anybody have that? Anybody have that phobia? If you have that fear, that's going to affect the way that you live your life. You're not going to go home and have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch today. All right? Uh, siderophobia is a fear of stars. If you've got a fear of stars, you're not going to go out in the evenings here in Arizona and look up at the sky. You're staying inside. Maybe they've watched Chicken Little too much and the falling of the sky. I don't know. Arithmophobia. Anybody can guess what that one is? A fear of numbers. What? I guess if you fear numbers, you're probably not going to serve on the finance team. Um. Amphalophobia is a fear of belly buttons. That's really a thing. If you have this fear, you're probably not going to the beach this summer for vacation. And one that probably is probably uh, true of most of us, whether we know it or not, nomophobia is a fear of not having a mobile phone. I actually forgot mine last week and left it at home, and I'm like, where is it? I'm not really afraid of not having it, but may, you know, maybe we are actually. There's actually a phobophobia, a fear of having fears. Kind of strange. But I say all these things, and it's funny, but our fears, whether justified or not, some of these are silly, and you're like, well, are you serious? People are actually afraid of that. But our fear affects how we live. 
And, and, and many times we don't fear God, but we fear other things. We, 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 may, fear, we may fear getting fired from our job as a Christian. If, it, if, we're, if we're afraid of getting fired, we're going to tuck our faith in a corner. We don't want people to find out that we're actually believers. If, if we're afraid of losing friends, we're not going to tell our friends that we got baptized at church on a Sunday. We're afraid of what our friends might think of us. Our fears determine how we live our lives. But when we fear God, when our fear is in the right place, we will live according to his word and live in obedience and holiness. So we must conduct ourselves with fear as we are spending our time here on earth. Yes, we have a hope that is awaiting us, but we are to live with a healthy fear of God now. And lastly, Number three, as we set our hope in God, we must love one another fervently. As we continue in the text, verse 22, it says, Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for sincere love for the brethren. This obedience to the truth is talking about our initial obedience and conversion, whereby we obey the demands of the gospel to repent and believe. This is that initial obedience. Since you have been converted, since you have an obedience to the truth, since you've repented and believed, you've placed your faith in Christ, your souls have been purified through the gospel. And it says this has happened for a sincere love of the brethren. Now that's a bit odd. And I want us to say that, that we are saved primarily to, to be in relationship with God. We are saved to have a re- right relationship to Him. Scripture says we're to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. Do you know what Jesus said was the second greatest commandment that was like it? May I remember? I hear it being mumbled. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? We are saved and we are converted not just to have a right, right relationship with God, but we are also redeemed to have a right relationship with one another. That's what First John also talks about that. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. You, you've been, you, you have purified yourself. You, you, you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. You've been brought not just into a right relationship to God, but you've brought into a right relationship with others. It said, since this has happened, then, it says, fervently love one another from the heart. That's what my NASB says, but I think the ESV has a, it says, fervently love one another from a pure heart, and that, that captures it a little bit better. And we see three things here about our love for one another that must mark who we are. And the first thing I want us to see is that that our love must be sincere. It says there in the text, since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love. I believe the King James might say unfeigned. Essentially, it's a word that, that basically says you're not pretending, you're not, you're not faking this, it's not, it's not being an imposter. This is a real, genuine love. 
It's authentic. The second thing that we see is that love must be pure. It talks about loving from a pure heart. It's a word that means free of, free of corrupt desire or free of ulterior motive. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Imagine, ladies, imagine for a moment, you walk into your, your house and your husband, he's got the house spotless. He's got the dishes put away. He's vacuumed the floors. He's made the bed. I mean, it is, there is, it is sparkling clean. Yeah, you, ladies, you're probably like, yeah, right, my husband's not doing that. But imagine he does, and you go in, you're like, all right, what do you want? What is it? What do you want? Oh, honey, I just love you so much. Oh, and can I go out to hunting with the boys this weekend? No, he, he's done something loving, but he's got, he's got something in his pocket. He's, he's got an ulterior motive for that act. It's not, a, it's not a pure love. He's got, he's got a motive in mind. But imagine you, you walk in the same scenario and the same situation. All right, what do you want? Honey, I just know you've, you've, you do so much for us. You work hard. I just wanted to do something nice for you. Have a seat. Take your shoes off. Dinner's going to be ready in 10 minutes. No ulterior motive. You're probably like, Wow, what did you do with my husband? And no, it's, 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 there's no ulterior motive. There, there's no, I just, just, just to love. The same, same thing happens in, uh, in the church. Imagine, let's say Jordan over here needs help moving a couch. And, and I'm like, oh, sure, man, I'll come help you with that. We get done. Hey, thanks, thanks, for, thanks for helping with that. Hey, no problem, I'm just here to serve. Hey, but... Just remember this when the offering plate passes through on Sunday. That's not obviously from a pure motive. I'll help you, but I've got to have my back scratched too. No, that's not what love is in the body of Christ. It is pure, free from any corrupt desire, free from any ulterior motive. Also, the, word, the text tells us that love must be fervent. Now, the, the word in, in Greek for fervent, it means to be stretched out. It means to be stretched out and, and, and that we are willing to be stretched for the sake of others. Imagine somebody asking for your help. Like, hey, man, can, can you, I got something I need help with. Oh, yeah, you know, when, when, when do you need help with that? Well, I mean, Saturday's good. Oh, man. Yeah, my Saturday's all booked. Things that have been previously scheduled, otherwise known as college football games. I don't know if I can help you with that. We're not willing to be stretched. Loving others fervently. I want you to think about this. Are you willing to be stretched financially for others? Think about if you found out somebody was struggling to, maybe, maybe they've been laid off and they're struggling to get a bill paid. You know what? I'm going to step in. I'm going to help you with that. I'm going to take care of that for you. Might stretch us financially. Might, might hurt a little bit. We might struggle for a little bit, but I'm going to help another brother in Christ. Or maybe being stretched with your time. Maybe you find out somebody needs help and you're like, man, I really got some other things I got to do, but man, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some time out of my day to help that person because they need it. 
loving others stretches us. Sometimes it stretches us mentally and emotionally because sometimes helping others, man, we get into it and it requires some mental effort. It requires some emotional involvement and sometimes loving others. We, we get done with it at the end of the day. We're like, finally I can sit down. It can be stretching. That's what we're called to do. I normally don't highlight specific church members <clears throat> in a sermon. Um, and I may get in trouble for sharing this story, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I'll deal with the, any, any feedback I might get. But Guy and Debbie Smith are some of our, our, our best members here. And I was um, talking with Guy a few weeks ago, and they were at Spurs Cafe for breakfast, which I wasn't invited to, so I got, we got a gripe against that, so that's a, you know, we got to fix, fix that, but no, he, he said that when we, he was there, he overheard a gentleman talking, and, and, and he kind of interrupted the conversation, and they can talk to anybody, by the way, and this man had gotten his, his truck or trailer stuck somewhere, I believe about an hour away, and guy says, well, what do we got to do to get you out? The guy was like, what do you mean? What do we got to do? I'm here. I, I can help you. What, what, what do we got to do? And guy went to purchase things that were needed. He went to go and spent all day helping this man who he's never met. Who does that? Right? But that's what we're called to do. As brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm going to give up my day and I'm going to stretch myself out because I see a need that needs to be met because I love people I'm going to do that I mean I was blown away by that because sometimes we won't even get a, give up a few hours of the day to help somebody out well hey my team's playing you know in about three hours I can help you in about three hours really man we've got some work to do Love must be fervent. Again, here we see that this command to love, this command to love sincerely and purely and fervently, this command is rooted in what God has done. Love this way. Why? Verse 23, for you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable but imperishable, uh, that is through the living, enduring word of God. We are able to love one another in this way because of what God has done in us through the new birth. Through being born again through the word of God, God enables us to love others in this sincere, pure, and fervent way. Now it's interesting in this particular passage, it quotes Isaiah 46 through 8. And this is a word of, of hope and, and restora re restoration to exiles in Babylon or in Assyria. And, 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 and as they're saying, look, I, I, know you're, I know you're in exile. I know you are being persecuted. I know you're in exile. I know you're suffering. But God has a plan. He's going to restore you to the promised land. God's word does not fail. His word endures forever. That is what you can hope and trust in. The grass will fall away. You guys don't even get to see grass here in Arizona unless you water it. But the grass withers. Flowers fall off. 
Those are temporary, but the word of God endures. This is a word that we can hope in. And this is what we have been born again with. So as we've been born again with, through this enduring word, we are able to love one another in a way that we don't have ulterior motives. We are willing to be stretched out. It's only because of what God has done in us. We've been born again. We've been redeemed. He has called us. And now we can live a holy life rooted in fear of who God is that, that flows out in how we love one another. Dear church, what is your life marked by? As we set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed when Christ comes. Man, I'm ready for that day. I'm ready for Jesus to come back and this world of brokenness and suffering and sin to be made new. Are you ready for that? But in the meantime, he's called us to do something. He's called us to a way of life. And our life must be marked by holiness, turning from those things that that are sinful, being holy as God is holy, and our holiness is involved in every area of our life. He's called us to conduct ourselves with fear. Is your life marked by a fear of God? Or do you fear everything and everyone else? Are you willing to love others in a sincere way? No other motive. And being willing to be stretched out. I think of the fact that God sent his son Jesus because he loved us. And Christ was literally stretched out on the cross in his love for us to save us from our sins. And I pray that we would be a people marked by this kind of love for others. If you're not a Christian today, if you, if you haven't placed your hope in Christ, I want you to be sure that there is no hope in anything else. There is no hope in anything in this world. It will all fade away. People will disappoint us. Our health can change in a matter of moments. Our hope is only in Christ. And you can have that hope today. But I want to be very clear that this is not a call to just wait for heaven. This is the call to be a good Christian is not a call to just get out of, get out of hell free. It's a call that places a demand on your life to live in holiness, fear, and love. To believers, where is your hope now? Life may be hard now, but what would you say? If I could only blank, life would be better. Maybe if you're single, well, man, if, if I could only get married, life would be much easier. Well, go talk to a married couple. Let them share you a few things. Maybe you're married and you're, you're, you've been married and you're just not fulfilled. If I could only have kids, life would be better. Go talk to some parents. Let them change that thinking for you. I mean, if I could only have blank, well, nothing in this world can give us hope except Christ. But as your hope is there, what is marking your life? May we continue to be a church marked by corporate holiness, a church marked by fear, and a sincere and fervent love 
for one another because of what Christ has done in our life. Let's pray together.